The evening was February 15th, 2014. 24 adults and their children gathered together in a room at Christian Liberty Academy. And something happened that night that did not make national news. It did not even make local news. But on that night, something did happen. Something happened that will never show up probably in world or even church history. We'll leave that for the Lord to decide. But on that night, a church was born. Those 24 adults gathered together and signed this very covenant that I hold in my hands. I don't know if there's a John Hancock on there, but all of them saying that they wanted to commit together by God's grace to start a church and make it about Jesus Christ. From the beginning, that's how this church got started. It was centered and focused around Jesus. There was no fanfare. There was no headlines and news. There was nothing to really be in awe of from a worldly standpoint. It was just a small number of adults gathering and saying, we love Jesus and we want to worship him week in and week out. And since that day, we have met together weekly in a few different locations, but the mission has stayed the same. This morning, as we begin a new eight-week study in the book of Revelation, we will be considering chapters 1 through 3 of Revelation, and in a much similar way, there is an event that seems seemingly insignificant in the eyes of the world, but it is a life-changing event to this man, John, who records these words, and it has continued to give life-transforming, rippling effects for all eternity. And so as we look at chapter 1 of Revelation this morning, we are going to be seeing an introduction of chapters 2 and 3, which is going to be the main thrust of this sermon series, the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And I know as we turn to this book, there's a lot of questions. What is it about? What have you heard about this book? Many people think that it's mostly about end times, future events, heaven and hell. There's strange images, symbols, visions. How do we understand them? How do we make sense of them? So for that sake, many people just don't even read this book. But before we read this first chapter, I want to make sure that you see verse 3 in chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the only place in all of Scripture where you are told, whoever reads this out loud and whoever hears it and keeps these words is a blessed man or woman. And isn't it a shame, then, that this is one of the most misunderstood neglected at times, and confusing books of the Bible. And it has this blessing to it. Blessed are those who read this word aloud. So let's read all of chapter 1 as I'll make a few comments about this chapter and this book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a robe, a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. One of the most passed over phrases in the book of Revelation is the word revelation. Some of you might even call this book Revelations. It's actually revelation in singular. You can read it in your own Bible, and that's correct. You can check it in your Greek New Testament. It's the revelation, and then here's the next phrase that's missed, of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I emphasize this first little phrase is because that, I believe, is the point of everything you will hear for the rest of this book. This book is all about revealing to you Jesus Christ. 
So I have one main point for this message, and I will break it into two sub-applications. We as a church, when we gather together, we should be all about Jesus Christ. Two sub-applications. We should be all about Jesus Christ when we gather together, and we should be all about Jesus Christ when we scatter. First, we should be all about Jesus Christ when we gather together. Do you realize that this book is not so confusing to the original hearers that they would have understood it and they would have read it during church worship, just like I did chapter 1? And in fact, they probably wouldn't have stopped in chapter 1. They would have just kept reading. Go figure. A church that gathers and just reads God's Word, like big, longer sections of God's Word, and they are hungry for God's Word. It seems as if that is what these churches were to do when they received this letter. Not just the little section that's directed toward them, as we will see in the coming weeks, but really the entire letter. Because this is, in fact, a letter, and it is a book of prophecy. It is a mixed genre all in one. It is a different book, that is for sure. But we should make no mistake about it. This book is, first and foremost, about Jesus. So let's take that first word again, the revelation. Study it. Break it down into its original meaning. It means to unveil a mystery, which again seems so strange when you consider that this book seems to be so mysterious to us. No, no, this book is to unveil a mystery and to reveal things that were once hidden that are now being made clear, and they're being made clear by looking at who Jesus is. That's his point by saying this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Should not be confusing should be quite simple to all of you. If you want to study Revelation, keep this one thought in mind. It's about Jesus. So then you get to chapter 6 or 7, and then you hear about horses, and you hear about all kinds of crazy dragons and people with multiple heads, and you're like, "What's, what's this about? It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. He tells you from the beginning. That's what it's about. So they are to read a Christ-centered word as they gather together, and they will be greatly blessed as they read this word. Notice, too, the response of John as he sees the voice that is speaking to him in chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. Who did he see? Who is the one that is like a son of man? Now, if you're astute, if you're paying attention, and you know that we don't do any scripture readings in this worship service that are just random. Oh, let's just read Daniel 7. And let's just read something from Mark's gospel. We need an Old and a New Testament, and we just flip through the Bible and go, bing! That's not how we do it. Time and prayer is spent to say, I would like the whole service to speak a message to you. So you've been, from the very beginning of this message, been hearing about one who is like the Son of Man coming on clouds. And this Son of Man was prophesied in Daniel 7, and he would have a kingdom that would never end. His reign and his rule would never end, and he is going to get from the Ancient of Days all authority to establish that kingdom. And then, when Mike came up and read, I had chills coming down my back because Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, coming with clouds. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7 when he stands before them, right before they spit in his face. It's breathtaking when you start putting the scriptures together like this. 
Jesus says, I am Daniel 7, son of man, establishing a kingdom that will never end. And so then they say, what more evidence do you need? Crucify this man. He is of a blasphemer. No, that Jesus is the king of kings whose kingdom will never end. And so when John sees him, he falls on his face as though dead. When the church gathers together embassy, we should realize who we're speaking to, who we're singing about, who we're reading about, who's being preached to you. This Jesus is not to be taken lightly. And so from the very beginning of this church, the second ever message I preached was a message going through all the examples of Scripture of what happens to somebody when they come face to face with the living God. And do you know what happens every time they come face to face with the living God? Most of you weren't there. But do you want to take a guess? Exactly what happened to John. They fall on their face as though they are dead. This, my friends, is what worship is all about. And this is what I fear many churches have lost today. As we have tried to get cute and funny, we have missed the vision of the glorious Christ. Yesterday, I watched the Chronicles of Narnia movie with my daughters because we just finished reading the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I asked them, I want you to tell me which parts are not in the movie that you liked in the book. And they were talking all throughout the movie, Daddy, that wasn't there, where was that, you know? Because the book's never as good as the movie, right? Have you experienced this? We experienced this yesterday. As we watch this movie, and we just finished the book, and I want to show you an example of this. So here's the book. The first time that the kids hear of Aslan, and if you've never read these stories or not familiar with them, Aslan is the Christ-like figure that is being metaphorically told in these stories. The first time they hear Aslan's name, the beaver is talking to them. This is like fictional, by the way, okay? So a beaver is talking, and the beaver says, they say that Aslan is on the move and maybe he's already landed. Now, this is what you don't get in the movie. And the first time they hear Aslan's name, they kind of perk up, and you can tell they're excited. Ooh, Aslan, who's that? But you don't get this description. This is so beautiful. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment that beaver spoke these words, everyone felt something quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that Someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream, it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Maybe a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or a lovely meaning, too lovely to even put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life, and you're wishing you could just get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling that you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that the beginning of the holiday, which vacation, it's English book, beginning of vacation started or summer. They keep talking about Aslan later on in the book. And one of my favorite lines, which is not in the movie, which I'm a little upset about. They're gathered together over tea and food. They bring up Aslan again. And they said, oh yes, tell us more about Aslan. 
several voices at once for once again that strange feeling, that first sign of spring or like good news has come over them. Who's Aslan? Susan asked. Aslan, said the beaver. Why, don't you know? He is the king. He is the lord of the whole woods. But not often here, you understand. He goes on, and then after that they say, but who is he? Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the emperor beyond the sea. Do you know who Aslan is, the king of the beasts? He is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Well, is he quite safe? I'd feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking together, well, they're either braver than most or they are just silly. Well, then isn't he safe, said Lucy? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about Aslan being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. And he is the king, I tell you. And Peter said, I am longing to see him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. They missed it in the movie, didn't they? That's one of the best parts, and that's an excellent illustration of what is happening here in Revelation 1. John is terrified of the vision of the Son of Man who is coming on clouds. But this king, he's good, I tell you. And you and me, when we gather together for worship, we should realize that Jesus Christ is the one that we should center our worship around because Christ is the source of our strength. He is our purpose and our mission. He is our most important thing that we could say or do anytime we meet together. We exist for the glory of Jesus Christ, period. In case you don't think that that is, in fact, the source of the church's strength, the purpose of their mission, and the most important thing that they could know is to know Jesus, then you're misunderstanding the structure of the first three chapters of this letter. I didn't even realize this until I was studying this book recently with the Judson students, but what I just read to you in verses 12 through 20, a phrase from that is going to be repeated at the end of each letter. So what we're going to see in the coming weeks is a little sneak preview. Look at the end of chapter 2, verse 7. He who has ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Every time at the end of the letters, he gives these words. At the end and at the beginning that are the same. The beginning words in chapter 2, verse 1, say the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. All of these beginning and intros refer back to themes that are expressed or introduced in the first chapter. So now drop down to 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life, which is what you just heard in verse 17. Jesus the living one, fear not, I have died and I am alive. Look at chapter 2, verse 12, and to the church in Pergamum, the words of him who has a two-edged sword. Remember that? The sword is coming out of the mouth of this son of man-like vision. Chapter 2, verse 18, the words of the son of God who has eyes like flames of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. 
chapter 3, verse 1, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter 3, verse 7, to the church in Philadelphia, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And lastly, chapter 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Each of the churches get an introduction to their letter with Jesus, a vision of the glory of Jesus. They are to take comfort and hope and instruction. They are to center their church gatherings and their church life around Jesus. I don't think that could be more clear in the way that he has organized the first three chapters. So that's why we exist as a church. And maybe that sounds good, but for some of us, you might say, that sounds too churchy. What does even glorify mean? Have you heard that word so often in church that you've even stopped to pause and ask, what does it mean? Glorify, does it mean to just sing songs? Does it mean to just pray? Does it mean to just get together for worship? We exist to glorify Jesus Christ. Oh, you say you get together to worship God. That's like singing and praying. The word glory, I think, is best understood when you understand that it means heavy. Like anybody from the 60s or 70s, dude, that's heavy. Like that. Like that's actually a really good translation of the word because it means weight. The Hebrew word that we understand heavy or glory is the word kavod, and it it gives this idea of such significance and weight and heaviness that nothing else matters in comparison. So it's not just simply singing, it's not just simply praying or coming to church service. When we say that we exist, we mean that all of our being experiences the heaviness and the importance and the weight of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything about how we gather and how we scatter. You remember in our Genesis study that we studied the idea of the image of God. And the image of God, that word image is actually the word for statue. And that a statue was to be of different kings in the land. So that when you walked by the Pharaoh's statue, you'd be like, whoa, that's, that's heavy. That's That's weighty. It's big. It's fierce. It's scary. It's supposed to tell you, I'm in charge. I'm King Nebuchadnezzar, and here's my statue. God in Genesis 1 says that we, we as humans, are his statue. And we are to have on us that mark of the heaviness of God for all of our days of existence. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you want to know, what does the Christians think and believe? That's, that's the first starting point. God made us as image bearers to have marked on us the heaviness and the weightiness of the glory of God on everything we do. Building, family, work, cultivating land, flourishing the human life. Everything you could think of, recreation, sleep, rest, eat, whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking, do it to the weighty glory of God. 
That's what God has called us to do. But in our sin, none of us in this room, we all fall short of that glory. None of us have that mark on us like we should. We all think other things are more important, namely us. We think our agendas are more important than God's agendas. And so that's what sin is. And sin has come into the world as we have exchanged the glory of God for the glory of created things. Jobs, relationships, sex, money, success. And we think that is where we will find our weight and our significance. And what Jesus Christ has come, he was the new image bearer of God who had the full weight of God's glory marked on him and he lived a perfect life. He died a death on a cross as we read in Mark and he did not deserve it. They could find no reason to accuse him until he said, I am the son of man who's coming with the clouds and I have a kingdom that will never end. And they accused him of blasphemy and for that reason they crucified him on a cross. Thanks be to God, he did not remain dead. And even though he did die, he was dead for three good days. He rose again victorious over death so that you and I, if you would put your faith and your trust in Jesus today, if you'd reaffirm your faith as you're hearing this good news being preached to you, then God is transforming you from one degree of glory to another. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. When we behold the glory of what Jesus has done for us on the cross as he is unveiled Because the gospel is the unveiling of the mystery of what God is doing in the world as Jesus is unveiled and made clear to you today. Even as a Christian, even if you've heard that a thousand times, God transforms us from one degree of glory to another, meaning the weight of God's heaviness gets further imprinted on our soul. We understand more our sin. We understand more his holiness, and therefore we grow. So that's why when we gather together, we gather primarily about Jesus Christ, and feeling that weight and that heaviness. You exist as a human to worship God and to reflect that glory. And so when we gather, we want to have that imprinted on the songs we sing. Holy, 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 merciful, but mighty. Jesus sought me when a stranger, when I was wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Do you feel the weight of that when you sing that? When we gather, we want to sing, as we will in just a few minutes, all I have is Christ. Jesus is my life. This is what we do when we gather. We don't try and impress you. Not with musical abilities. Not with perfect scripture readings and slick services and perfectly timed everything. From the beginning, we've said, guys, if people can walk out of here week in and week out beholding the glory of Christ, then we've accomplished our purpose. If we get distracted by all these other things, then we will have lost our purpose. And so let's get him up. Does anyone remember what I'm referring to when I say that? There were only a few of you in the room But our very first meeting as a church, I told a story, and so I tell it to you all now on our third anniversary Sunday. When I was talking to our church about preaching, I said, as your pastor, I'm committing to you that I want to get Jesus Christ up, high, lifted up. I said, I heard a story, and I don't even remember where it's from, and still I was trying to figure out who told me this story. But there's a woman that was in an African-American church, 
If you know anything about African-American church, they talk back to you. You guys mostly don't talk back to me. That's okay. No shame in that. But in African-American church culture, there's a lot of, amen, preacher. Come on, okay. And there's a lot of this talking back and forth. It's more of a conversation. At this particular church, they were used to hearing Jesus week in and week out. And when there was a guest preacher that came, he apparently didn't have that same vision for preaching. And so this woman who sits in the front row, she starts kind of saying quietly under her breath, get him up. Get him up. Because he keeps preaching. And there's, there's not much Jesus. There's not much Jesus going on. She just keeps getting louder and louder. Come on, let's get him up. Let's get him up. I mean, just imagine the scene. And so that's what I told our church that very first night as I said, it is my hope that none of you ever have to say those words to me. That week in and week out, we will, we will get him up. And we will get him up on his throne as he is rightly deserving and preach him when we gather. But my friends, this is not just when we gather together. If you think church is primarily a thing you do between the hours of 11, 15, and whatever gathering, the church is a people. We gather together to receive Jesus because when we see him as weighty like this, it changes everything about how we live from this point on when we exit those doors. So when we scatter, we live together centered around the glory of Jesus Christ. And this is in fact what I think we see here in Revelation chapter 1. So look back with me again at this passage. And I want you to notice something that John makes crystal clear. I believe a lot of this book is symbolic imagery and you just need to see the clues that John gives you. So, for example, notice in verse 12 that he says, I turned and saw the voice. And when he saw the voice, he saw seven golden lampstands. And you're like, huh, what does that mean, seven golden lampstands? Now, it probably refers back to something about the lampstands that are in the temple in the presence of God. There's all kinds of Old Testament imagery. If you don't know your Old Testament, you're really not going to understand the book of Revelation. You'll need somebody to help walk you through that, just as an FYI. But notice John here makes it really easy. You just need to keep reading. Drop your eyes down to verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Oh, well, there you go. What are these seven lampstands? That's the churches that he's about to talk about that he listed. So the lampstands are the churches. Okay, got it. No, no. Do you know what he's saying in chapter 1? And for that matter, what he's saying in chapter 2 and 3 as he talks to these churches. Look again, verse 12. Then I saw the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And then watch this. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. What more helpful, encouraging, and beautiful words than in the midst? Do you see what the vision is? I see these seven churches, and seven is the number symbolically for all complete perfection. So yes, there are seven historical churches, and it seems as if this letter went to those seven churches. But in this vision, you should understand him saying that in the middle of all of God's full gathering of churches from all time stands in the middle one like a son of man. Jesus is with his churches and he will remain with his churches. 
Now, this might not strike you as significant, but as we're about to find out in chapters 2 and 3, these churches are going through hell. That ever been any of you? You ever come to church and felt real encouraged, but then Monday morning came and it was not so good? Tuesday? Maybe by Wednesday, Thursday? Things are getting worse. You're looking forward to Sunday because you need Jesus again. Well, guess what? Jesus is with his churches. He is with you. He has given his spirit. He has given the presence of himself with you wherever you go in the midst of the suffering. And one of the main encouragements of chapters 2 and 3 as we're about to find out is Jesus can tell him, I'm with you, with, I'm with you in this suffering. Look at my suffering because you will know that I'm with you, that I suffered too. I'm not the kind of God that looks down at your troubles and says, well, I hope you get through that. Here's a few words of encouragement. No, no, I'm the God who comes and walks with you and actually walks the road before you have to walk it. I took the cross first before I asked you to take your cross. Aren't those the most beautiful words that you've heard today? He is in the midst of his churches wherever they're scattered abroad. And whenever you scatter out here today, you should know that you have Jesus with you. And so therefore, when we scatter, we should take Jesus with us and make our lives have the weight and the glory of Jesus in everything that we do as Christians. It should spur us on to encourage each other all week long when somebody is going through surgeries, suffering, the loss of a loved one, the pain of getting laid off, etc., etc., that we encourage one another Jesus, 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 he's with you and he's walking alongside of you. He is not leaving you. I know this is tough and you might think that God does not love you because of these circumstances, but look beyond the circumstances and see the cross. That, my friend, is in essence what we mean when we say we make disciples. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is somebody who gets that. Jesus is with us and he's walking alongside of us and he's living out of us all the days of our lives. So all our lives is Jesus. All we have is Christ. Jesus is our life Monday morning, going to work, changing diapers, staying home, teaching children, parenting, you name it, doing schoolwork, studying at Judson, you name it, Jesus is with you. And could you want anything more than that? I mean, we do in our sin. But really, if we have Christ, and if you've experienced the beauty and the joy and that weight of knowing Jesus, then maybe you've caught a glimpse of saying, that's enough. That's enough for me, and that's enough for our church, that's enough for the northwest suburbs, that's enough for the nations. So we gather as a church. We gathered three years ago, and we started this church with this one simple statement. We exist to glorify Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations. And so I stand here today not trying to toot our horn, but to give praise to God for how he has used this church in just that way. We have not been great. We are nothing to write home about or be all excited about. Please do not leave and think, man, that embassy church, that's, that's defeating the very purpose. Man, that Jesus, he is good to his churches one example of that is embassy. That's a different way to put it, isn't it? God is great. He has given the growth. 24 people signed that document. Since then, 50 plus more have signed it. That may not be like, ooh, well, 
But guys, we've not done anything to spend money on advertising. We've not done anything to try and be marketable. All we've done is said, if Jesus is so big in your life, then he will be big out of these doors every single day of the week. And you will tell your friends about Jesus. You will just, you just can't help it. He's, he's big to you. He's everything to you. So now we have testimonies of people sharing the gospel when they go to the gym and when they go to work with their coworkers. And we've baptized 10 plus new converts in the last three years because of just those very things. God is great and deserves all glory because we have just lifted him up. And as John 12, 32 says, one of my favorite verses in all the gospels, I think pastors have way too many favorite verses. <laughs> Jesus promises, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I said that on the very first day after I talked about, get him up, get him up. I said, John 12, 32. Remember it, embassy. That's all we got to do. Lift him up. He will draw men and women to himself and look around the room. Friends, that's all we've done. Nothing special. There's been no extra strategy, secret sauce. Get Jesus up on Sundays. Get him up all throughout the week. And people who are hungry for the true God, Jesus Christ, they'll come. They'll come because they, they know that they can find source of strength and purpose and mission in Jesus and their life can be defined and known by him. So look at Jesus as I share these few small stats. Look at Jesus and know that we are so still imperfect as a church and have so much more growing to do. We're like a little toddler. We're three. We're still tripping over ourselves. There's still lots of things God's going to do to use this church to grow us and to grow in this community. But we're going to just keep lifting him up. I'm going to keep talking about Jesus no matter which book of the Bible we're in. Genesis, Revelation, Esther, Titus, Psalms. It's so cool to look back these last three years as your preaching pastor and see that we've basically covered every genre of Scripture. And I'm sure with greater or less effectiveness, I can still say with confidence, I think Jesus Christ has been lifted up and preached in every book that we've covered. So my hope and prayer is that we will continue throughout the rest of the days he gives us until he returns, until we all die. We will pass on the gospel and get Jesus up as we gather, as we scatter. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are full of thanks. My heart is exploding with thanks. It would be easy for us to look at our faults and failures today, but God, in this day, we are setting aside all the other days of the year to look at how we can grow and improve. But today is a day of thanks. Today is a day of acknowledging that you are at work, that you are here in our midst, that as we gather, we experience your presence. So we thank you for it. We thank you that you are in our midst. We thank you that you are in the midst of every book of Scripture, that all Scripture is God-breathed and all of it is Christ-centered. We thank you for the ways church members have provided hope through Jesus' cross in counseling.
in difficult days of depression, in battling sin and unbelief. We thank you, God, for the way the gospel changes hearts and people stop living for themselves and start giving of their finances to serve members in this church who are struggling financially don't even know how they're going to pay their rent. God, you've used this church time and time again over these last three years to help care for those who are needy, spiritually needy, physically needy, emotionally needing comfort and support and love. Thanks just seems too trite at this moment, but God, we give you thanks. We're grateful. You deserve all glory and praise. And so we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I could think of two really good ways to conclude a celebration of God's faithfulness. One would be